0: albums, there are a lot of pictures of me as a toddler spending my days with them while my parents worked. But even as I got older and my mom was able to stay home with my three other siblings and I, I still did spend a lot of time with my grandparents. Whenever mom and dad went out for the evening, it was always grandma and grandpa who came over to babysit us. One of the best parts of my childhood was when we were dropped off at grandma and grandpa's house for sleepovers The four of us would line up our sleeping bags in her living room. Grandma would be in the kitchen making those cheap, frozen $5 pizzas that tasted so good because they were at Grandma's house. And then we'd finish the night eating ice cream and watching movies until we fell asleep. Having spent so much time with them, I have these lasting images of my grandparents. And one of those images of my grandma is her love of soap operas. She was always watching them. I need to watch my soaps, she used to say. She would go into the kitchen and grab one of those iced Starbucks frappuccinos from the fridge, pour it over a glass full of ice, and sit at her favorite spot on the couch. And then she would flip on her TV. She had one of those archaic types of televisions, you know, with like the wood paneling around the side, like it was a, a piece of furniture in the living room. That was the TV that she had the entire time I knew her. There were no flat screens in her house. And my grandma would sit there sipping on her frappuccino, watching every soap opera imaginable. Days of our lives, the young and the restless, all my children. She never missed them. In fact, on top of that ancient television set were two VCRs. You remember VCRs, right? And she had a bunch of blank VHSs. You remember those too, right? And she would record multiple soap operas at once so she could be watching one while simultaneously recording another that she could then watch later in the day. When asked how she could watch those shows with those over-the-top drama, rife with terrible acting, crazy moral dilemmas, ridiculous plot points, weird family dynamics, my grandma responded by saying, seeing stories of people with so many dramatic problems made her seem small. My grandma's soaps have nothing on the book of Genesis. Genesis. The very first book of the Bible that details the beginning of humankind's relationship with God, in the words of Rabbi Burton Vistovsky, unfolds like the longest-running soap opera in history. We're going to delve into the soap opera that is the book of Genesis in a sermon series that will take us through the summer that I'm calling Family Reunion, the messy, dysfunctional, and yet beautiful families of the book of Genesis. And certainly the families of Genesis are messy and dysfunctional. Whatever dysfunction may happen in your families probably pales in comparison to those found in the book of Genesis, or at least I hope it does. Within that first generation of humanity, one brother murders another out of jealousy, and then towards the end of the book, uh, Joseph's 12 brothers sell him into slavery out of jealousy because of their father Jacob's blatant favoritism of him. There's this crazy love triangle between Jacob, Leah, and Rachel, and all of that happens after Jacob steals the birthright of his second older brother, twin brother, Esau. There are 90-year-old women who give birth, and people live to be something like 900 years old in the beginning of Genesis. The book of Genesis is full of all the drama, wild and ridiculous plot points, crazy moral dilemmas, and weird family dynamics of the soap operas I saw my grandmother watching growing up. The families of Genesis are certainly dysfunctional, but they are also beautiful. Even with all the dysfunction and the mess of Genesis, there are these beautiful and hopeful moments. There is joy over the birth of unexpected but longed for and wished for and prayed for children. There are marriages and people learning to live together as a family. There are these great moments of forgiveness and reconciliation, not only in that famous story of Joseph and his brothers, but also between Jacob and Esau. The families of Genesis are our family, and all of the good and the bad, and all the negative and hope-filled moments. They are our ancestors in faith. I remember when I was younger, every summer we would have the Edstrom Family Reunion in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. And at those family reunions, I saw family members that I never saw anywhere else but at that family reunion. We may not spend a lot of time thinking about our family members in Genesis. We may not always like the things they do. Truth be told, there are times they do things that might shock and horrify us. And sometimes their lives look a lot like the soap operas my grandmother loved to watch. But as our family, they don't just have something to teach us about our relationship with each other, but also our relationship with God. That our ancestors in faith remind us that there has never been a honeymoon phase in our relationship with God. From the very beginning, humankind's relationship with God has always been messy. As theologically incorrect as it may seem to say this, God seems to have to try to figure things out in the book of Genesis, to figure out how to be in relationship with us. That God in the very beginning is imagined as stooping down into creation and forming us from the dust to the ground with God's own hands and then breathing breath into us, so we become these image-bearing creations of God. And and yet God seems to have to figure out how to best relate to us. We tend to to think of God as all-knowing and all-powerful, but The book of Genesis gives us a sense that God is learning how to relate to us. Most of you know the story of Noah's Ark. It's kind of become famous as a children's story these days. I I think back to my former congregation in Missouri and the the Christian education wing, and they had this Noah's Ark painting with all the smiling animals floating along the water. But if you know anything about the story, you know that it's not anything but a a G-rated children's story, that That humankind is imagined as being especially wicked and violent and destructive. And and God is imagined as as being grieved that humankind was ever created. And so God wants to to do it over again. He, He presses the redo button. And God sends a worldwide flood with the exception of Noah and his family and the animals on the ark. And so after the waters subside, God puts a rainbow in the sky with the promise that God will not relate to humanity in that way again, that God will never again send a worldwide flood to destroy everything. But even after the flood, humankind isn't much better. That God, in the mind of the authors of Genesis, is still ready to give up on us. But rather than giving up on us, as we enter into the story of our ancestors in faith, as we join this family reunion... God is attempting a new way of relating to humanity. And that new way of relating means that rather than speaking to all of humanity in general, that God calls one person and one family, in the words of the scholar Ellen Davis, to be the prism through which God's goodness and blessings will flow into the world. Long before he was Abraham, long before he was Father Abraham who had many sons, he was known as Abram. And Abram, his wife Sarai, and his nephew Lot are nomads who left a place known as Ur of the Chaldeans somewhere in modern-day Iraq, and they settled in Haran in modern-day Turkey along the Syrian border. And that's when God's word comes to him and says, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make you a blessing to other people. God had never spoken to Abram before this moment. At least we don't have any record of that. Perhaps even Abram had served and worshipped other gods. And yet when the God of creation, the one true and living God, speaks to Abram, he listens. Abram is not young by any stretch of the imagination. He is 75 years old. He is in the later stages of his life. And yet when God's word comes to him, God Abram knows that it is true and so he decides to leave on the instructions of a God he had never met to a land where he had never been he's going to a place he does not know Abram packs up everything he has and according to what we just read he had a lot of possessions and he goes on a journey to an unknown destination one of the things that makes me feel like I've settled into a new area is when I can get somewhere without using my GPS. I'm always so proud of myself when I can get somewhere in Oakland County without the help of Google Maps. So last week, Heather and I needed to go to Lowe's to get some stuff for our house, and so we dropped Axel off at daycare, and then we drove up to Lowe's in Sterling Heights, and I, and I said, or Madison Heights, and I said to, uh, to Heather, look, I'm not doing this with the GPS, and she, my directionally challenged wife, was of course impressed. Inevitably, though, there are times where I try to get somewhere around here, and I find out that I, in fact, do not know where I am going, that I am on a journey to an unknown destination. It is a great way to see parts of Oakland County they may not have otherwise seen. And it's in those moments that Heather reminds me that there is no shame in putting the address into the GPS. Abram is on a journey to a place he does not know, a place he has never been, He is 75 years old, despite never hearing from this God before, despite not knowing where he is going, he listens and follows the call of this up-until-now unknown God. As astounding as Abram's willingness to go is to me, I'm even more astounded by God's willingness to call Abram. We know nothing about Abram before this moment outside of his ancestry, which is found at the end of the previous chapter in Genesis 11. Abram has done nothing in the story to show that he is a person who is worthwhile of God's call in his life. There is no indication that Abram was a person of exceptional faith. We don't know whether he was a person who was known to follow through on the things he said he would do, or if he was flaky and, and didn't follow through on the things he said he would do. We don't know if he was particularly gifted in any one area. We don't know if he was an exceedingly compassionate person. What we'll soon learn about Abram in Genesis is that he actually gets things really wrong quite a bit of the time. That the very next story after this one is when Abram and Sarai are traveling through Egypt, and Abram is scared that the Egyptians will know that Sarai is his wife, and they will kill him, and they will take her. And so his plan, and I don't know why this plan was much better, was to tell the Egyptians that Sarai was his sister. And so what happens is Pharaoh takes Sarai as one of his wives, and then a plague descends on Egypt, and Abram has to confess what he's done, and Pharaoh says, get out of my country. You've caused me so many problems. Right from the get-go, Abram is struggling to trust this God who has called him. And then in a couple of weeks, we'll see both Abram and Sarai become oppressive and unjust people in the ways that they treat their slave, Hagar. That there are several points along the way that Abram shows that perhaps he is not the best investment. It's not just that Abram, who is on a journey to an unknown place, but it is also God. That God calls someone, that God maybe isn't always sure will be faithful to him that God calls someone who has nothing in his known track record that would prove that he is indeed worthy. And yet, God calls him anyways. God takes a chance and a risk on Abram, and in doing so, God takes a risk and a chance on all of humankind. Because remember, it is through Abram, it is through his family, that the blessings and the goodness and the love and the grace of God will flow into the world. Despite all of the the brokenness and the mess that humanity sometimes is, God refuses to give up on us. That God is always willing to take a risk on us and for us. It's not that we have somehow become less messy and less dysfunctional 4,000 years or so after the call of Abram. There are a lot of ways we could point to that we are messy and dysfunctional people, not only in our personal and family lives, but also in our lives together as a society. Look back through human history and we'll see it. Turn on the news and it is really obvious. We haven't always proven ourselves to be the best investments. And yet, the God who was revealed to us in Genesis is a God who refuses to give up on us. The God of Genesis is the God who calls us and loves us without any indication that we would ever be faithful, without any indication that we would ever reciprocate that love. This is the God who risks everything everything in order to be in relationship with us. This is who God has been from the very beginning. You know, sometimes we as Christians, we think about the Old Testament God as being mean or or angry all the time. God, from the very beginning, in the very first book of the Bible, from its opening chapters, is a God of grace and a God of love who calls us without any conditions on who we are. And we as Christians See this God revealed to us in Jesus, who we believe is the embodiment of God. That God wants to be in relationship with us so much that God takes on our humanity and becomes one of us. We often talk about how Jesus reveals to us who God is, and that is true. But I also think what we often miss is that that Jesus shows God who we are. That Jesus is now with God, revealing our humanity to God. That God from the very beginning has always been a God of grace. That God from the very beginning makes a choice to be God for us and God with us, not God against us or God apart from us. Before Abram can ever say to God, you are my God, God says to Abram, you are mine. I call you, I love you, and I choose you. Perhaps God knows that Abram will get things wrong along the way and really wrong along the way. But God calls him anyways. That is who God is. We as individuals, we as communities, we as societies, we get things really, really wrong sometimes, and perhaps a lot of the time. And yet, God doesn't give up on us. We may not always be the most qualified or the most gifted, and yet God calls us and loves us just the same. The God who got messy at creation, forming us from the dust to the ground, continues to get messy with us. It is not beneath God to descend into the mess and the dysfunction that sometimes marks our lives. As I hear this call of of Abram, I can't help but think about our practice of baptizing children. That our baptism of children is a reminder to us that God's grace is always ahead of us. That God's love for us does not depend on us, but it is there simply because we exist. Before we can ever respond in faith, God is already there. God is already faithful to us. That what is true in our baptisms, that we are beloved and cherished children of God, is true long before the water is ever poured over our heads. Abram too is loved and called long before he ever says yes to following this unknown God to an unknown destination. And so our family reunion with our ancestors in faith begins with that reminder that despite our brokenness, despite the mess, despite the dysfunction, God is always reaching down to us, that God refuses to give up on us, that God is always ready to show us the depth of love that God has for us, that even when our lives look like a soap opera, God decides to become part of that soap opera because this is who God has been from the very beginning and who God continues to be a God of grace and a God of love, a God who never, ever refuses and always is with us and never gives up on us. Thanks be to God. Amen.